You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Well, everyone, welcome to the March 2nd, 2023 Carbon Removal Newsroom. Uh, Today, we're focusing on science. And I'm happy to welcome Holly Jean Buck, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo, uh, pinch hitting for Jane today. Hi, Holly. Hello. And then we have Shannon Valley, Paleo-Oceanography and Marine Biogeochemistry Researcher, who is currently a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow at USAID. Shannon, welcome. Glad to be back. And as always, Radhika Mugafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology here at Nori. So today we're going to talk a little bit about blue carbon. Blue carbon has emerged as a popular climate solution with offset marketplaces in at Vera and Gold Standard. Um, and Salesforce and the World Economic Forum teaming up to announce their own blue carbon credit fr- framework at COP27 last year. Blue carbon crediting usually means protecting ecosystems like mangrove forests, seagrass beds, and salt marshes. It can also include restoring these ecosystems when they've been degraded or destroyed. Um, A recent paper published in the journal Earth Science Reviews titled Remote Sensing for Effective Blue Carbon Accounting reviewed the potential for new technology to improve the remote sensing of blue carbon ecosystems. As carbon markets continue to grow and billions of dollars will likely flow towards blue carbon projects, this kind of innovation is important. And to tell scientists in the rest of the world how much these ecosystems are sequestering in carbon dioxide. So let's get started to talk about the promise of these of these technologies and what these papers had to say. So Holly, beginning with some more broad broader context, can you tell us the importance of satellites overall in climate science? Well, it's huge. (laughs) It's almost hard to encapsulate. I mean, obviously satellites have been really important in developing the physical science basis for understanding how our climate is changing in terms of understanding the atmosphere, the oceans, and land, land use change, ice melt, all of this. And we have now 50 years worth of data on how our planet is changing from um, satellites, then increasingly, I think they're important too in adaptation in terms of understanding impacts from climate change and what we can do to address them. Um, Thinking about understanding local heat islands or developing early warning systems for extreme events, helping to guide our adaptation practice. And finally, um, more and more, they're gaining importance in mitigation too. So monitoring and reducing emissions, both methane and CO2, as well as helping us do things like optimize shipping or other form of transport to reduce our emissions. So a big role across the portfolio of climate response. Yeah, that's very, very broad. So we will narrow it down a little bit right now and talk about this paper, which uh, examined how remote sensing can help monitor blue carbon systems. So Shannon, what are the current methodologies for uh, tracking these kinds of ecosystems? In blue carbon ecosystems, the carbon storage is measured um, in two ways, um, in the plant biomass and then also in the soil carbon. And the majority of blue carbon is stored in the soil. 
And then that can be measured or modeled down to different depths, kind of depending on what kind of methodology you want to use. Um, so then the paper um, describes a couple of different approaches for estimating the rate of change in carbon accumulation or loss. And so that's either done by sampling from different land use types um, over time, so different coastal ecosystems, um, which you can sample directly if you have access, or um, by kind of multiplying the carbon flux of a land use type versus that coastal area that's involved. Um, so that, and that estimate can be like a global, regional, or site-specific calculation, depending on the granularity of the data that you have. Of course, the higher the specificity or the higher the granularity you have, the higher the resource requirement is involved. And so that second type of not just directly measuring, but kind of um, taking a calculation based on area and our understanding of flux in a given um, type of ecosystem, that's where remote sensing can really be a big help. And so the paper then goes into describing a bunch of different advancements um, in remote sensing tech that's available to scientists, land managers, and, and other folks now. So can you give us, um, Shannon, an overview of sort of the different advancements and also um, if you see any advantages to these new techniques and how they might differ from the past? Yeah, so um, as Holly was saying, um, remote sensing has really changed and grown over time. And so if you're talking specifically about satellites, that we go back to the 70s with um, Landsat data. Landsat has been kind of the workhorse of um, Earth science and or just um, Earth observations and satellites. And that's kind of, um, it's great continuous data from that period, but a lot of that is um, lower resolution. Landsat's still in operation, but we've had other um, satellites and other types of um, remote sensing um, tools that have come on board that have, can get you much higher resolution. So that's going from a difference of understanding just like the presence or absence of um, a marsh environment, a mangrove, um, or seagrasses, to going to more into detail about kind of um, uh, parsing out the structures and the heterogeneity of these systems. So like you can tell even at higher resolution, you can look at things like leaf chlorophyll, like canopy height of these environments, the health and the productivity um, and the maturity of these systems. So that's something that, you know, for maybe greenhouse gas accounting at a national level is too detailed, but it's great for monitoring stocks if you want to include them in the carbon market, for example. Um, they also talk about innovations um, to the analytical side of things, um, including machine learning, um, different techniques of combining data from both passive sensors and what they call active sensors, those that are using like LIDAR and radar that help again kind of get to more of the, the differences in the structure and the densities um, of, of these different ecosystems. So Holly, um, you know, a favorite topic of ours across all these shows is how do you estimate the amount of carbon dioxide stored? How trustworthy are these carbon dioxide estimates? Because obviously, well, maybe, I mean, obviously these are used for crediting systems and for net zero pledges. So how difficult is it to translate this data into estimates of carbon dioxide storage and, and how comfortable do you feel with these estimates? So the short answer is <laughs> it's getting easier all the time because of machine learning. 
to translate the data from the satellites into estimates. In terms of how trustworthy it is, I think it depends a lot on the ecosystem. And so, you know, we're focused a little bit on the satellites, but there's really three parts to this. There's the satellites or the other sensors, there's field measurements on the ground, and then there's an algorithm that makes the correspondences. So those algorithms are one part that's really been improving a lot. Although the satellites have too. I actually used to work for a remote company, a remote sensing company back in 2005, 2006, 2007. And, you know, we had a modified Learjet that we were flying with a radar that would send pulses down and information would bounce back. And you'd have to fly this plane overnight, just in lines back and forth. And like, that's fantastically expensive for the jet fuel and to pay like me to sit in the back of this plane and pre press a button every 15 minutes. And now like you have a satellite, you know, you'd never do it that way now. It's, everything has become um, a lot cheaper. So I know I sound like I'm, you know, an innovation hyper at this point, but it's been really cool to see this field mature. And the, the thing is, you still have to think about the field measurements though. Um, that's still like a, a thing that you want to get correct and you're going to need it that for the whole thing to be trustworthy um and in terms of the ecosystems like i think forest carbon is probably the most developed and this paper talks a lot about like mangroves they feel pretty good about but like tidal marshes are more challenging i mean there's different things about like looking under the water and the light glint that bounces back and all these different factors that it doesn't seem from my read of this paper that we're quite there yet with regards to like seagrass meadows for example which uh dovetails in nicely into the next question i was going to ask shannon which is you know um we're talking very generically about blue carbon ecosystems but i'm sure there's obviously detail in how much carbon can be stored within different of these various ecosystems. So generically, how much can a blue carbon ecosystem store within it? If you can like think about maybe just a mangrove or a seagrass or whatever one you'd wanna choose and um, what impacts its ability to hold carbon dioxide? One of the reasons why we're so excited about blue carbon as a field, why it has its own kind of moniker is because these systems, because um, they're partially, uh, at least partially underwater, these are anoxic environments that allow for greater carbon storage kind of per unit area than um, like a land, like a typical land-based forest. But the, the rates of that carbon storage do vary. Um, some of that has to do with um, changes in like species distribution, um, kind of things with the like local hydrology that can impact the self sediment regime. Um, there can be single seasonal or longer term changes that impact the productivity of the system. Um, I think the paper talks a little bit about um, kind of light resources and nutrient availability specifically um, in the case of seagrasses. And then human intervention, of course, is always a big one. So kind of impacting all of those different things that I already described, but then to kind of speak to my kind of parochial interests, research interests, I think a lot about um, our interactions with marshes and how if we change those hydrologies of tidal marshes such that they go from kind of predominantly um, salt water 
estuarine environments to more fresher environments, then those can switch over from kind of net sequestering to net carbon emitting um, systems because um, there's methane produced in that, that kind of changed uh, anoxic environment. So a number of different things can affect that, that variability, that um, level of carbon storage. All right, so now I want to um, pivot a little bit to the applied use of remote sensing. Um, and obviously, as Holly was just um, alluding to, the space is maturing, it's changing a lot. Um, so that there's a growth of private Earth observation satellites, companies, and small satellites. Shannon, I'm curious what you think of this trend and uh, if you are, you know, positive, negative, neutral about it. Mostly positive. Um, I'm pretty excited about the availability of data to larger groups of people, especially if you can bring that price point down for different groups, whether it's students, um, universities, um, companies that need it for various reasons, um, and for lower and middle income countries to have access um, to a lot of the data, but also the tech um, and the in-between parts that Holly was talking about. Um, before, because I think, you know, it's important to remember when you're talking about low and middle income countries, you're not just talking about like frontline fishers and farmers, you're also talking about students and researchers and professionals who have built expertise or, or building expertise, but they may not always have um, kind of the technical resources um, to um, locally to apply their skills to those issues that they're trying to address. So lower costs, kind of smaller satellites um, and, and data um, can help um, kind of bring down those barriers of access to allow folks to um, get involved in that, um, that space from where they are and not have to um, contribute to type of brain drain and so on. Now, that's all kind of dependent on that that really being accessible and equitable because everything like you were saying it's not just small sets but there's a lot of companies that have a lot of data that are um, producing it for cost and that is not always accessible to folks so I'd say super positive on small sets and cube sets as a trend in terms of um, data accessibility but only if it's really accessible to the, the broadest number of people possible. Yeah, just by coincidence, today on the front page of the New York Times, there was a headline that said the Hubble telescope is being disrupted by these small satellites because they're encroaching on its pictures, which, you know, talk about unintended consequences. It's fact that's kind of, I found that interesting. Yeah, um, that's not the kind of small sets I was thinking about, but yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, you there never is a, know. There is a lot of clutter out there. That's true. There's that's a lot of clutter. Uh, so Holly, lots of recent articles have been finding that the palm oil industry, surprisingly, in Southeast Asia is not causing as much deforestation after decades of, of doing so. It's mainly being discovered through satellite data. So what is the implication of the improved monitoring of potentially destructive industries? You know, and is it in the same vein as what Shannon said was time out, like more data is just good news for us overall? More data is good. I think in the palm oil situation, I mean, they also had a pathway to kind of put pressure and take action once they had the data. So that, that's the thing, like we have these cool initiatives and platforms coming online, like 
climate trace, which uses satellites plus other sensors to give an accounting of emissions, or Carbon Mapper, which is a nonprofit organization and program um, collaboration with Planet and the state of California and JPL and some other universities um, and NGOs. It's really cool. They'll be able to pinpoint specific um, CO2 point source and methane emissions. But I think sometimes in the tech world, we get so excited by the data that we, we, we don't put enough attention on like who's going to be able to use this data to do what. There's this tendency to mistake monitoring or amassing data for action. So as long as we're, we're clear that like somebody has to be willing to take action on all this data, um, that's, the, that's my one cautionary note among the good news here. Well, I mean, the flip side was there was some bad news uh, as about satellite data in the sense that countries who um, have less ability to access satellite data, their um, flooding estimates were way under. And the U.S. has accurate estimates because it's been using satellites. So how do um, we think about that for climate adaptation for these developing countries? How do we get them better data? and are these technological advancements enough if we get them the data or do we need to do even more in terms of advancements to get them the right information? Shannon, if that question made any sense, I turn it to you. <laughs> no, it, it definitely made sense. I think you know where I'm gonna go with this too is, yeah, so actually the report was saying that like, it's it's not the satellites, it's, it's these some of the other tools like Holly was saying, there's aerial data that the U.S. had that was complementing some of our satellite data that allowed us to have more refined flooding estimates. But then there's this other satellite program, um, ISAT-2, that's normally used um, for to understand changes in ice cover, was then um, turned on over land, and then it was found to be useful to provide estimates for um, potential flooding and sea level rise in areas that are less um, kind of well-studied. So like before I even read this article fully, like my, I just based on the title, I was thinking like, man, I spend a lot of time thinking about data for climate mitigation, but for adaptation too, it's so important. And so just with the rising seas and increased variability and intensity of precipitation that we're seeing in a lot of um, developing countries, like flooding mapping is some of the most vital information that countries can have not just to avoid harm, but also to build for the future. And, you know, I don't know how the study came together. One of the great things about some of these larger kind of government satellite programs is that the data can be open for researchers to kind of jump in to what kind of applications they want to use it for. But I think we definitely need to see more intentionality about how um, lower and middle income countries are involved. Um, and, and some of that, the prioritization of uh, research and studies like this are, are how they're done. I think because like inequitable access to these data and how they're used um, is a great way to just ensure that populations that are already ahead are going to stay ahead and countries and economies that are developing will continue to struggle. Um, I think lastly, so the report also talks about loss and damages, um, which is a term that I was unfamiliar with until recently, but it made a big reappearance at COP um, in, in Egypt this past year. 
um, kind of talking, loss and damages is referring to like the transfer of funds from historic high emitting countries to um, historic lower emitters um, to support their adaptation to climate change. I think that's a really sticky conversation, but you cannot resolve it equitably at all if the information is not equally accessible and is not kind of held in, you know, by those countries that are experiencing the worst impacts. Um, I said last thing, last, last thing, because you this is what happens when you get me in my wheelhouse, right? <laughs> There's a great project um, between NASA and USAID um, called SEVERE that works with different hubs of uh, geospatial specialists um, in different parts of the world. And it is specifically looking at um, applying Earth observations for di disaster management, for air quality, water planning, et cetera. It's a great program, um, but it's, you know, it's, it is a program kind of among a broader environment that's that's not alone is going to um, kind of bridge the information gap that's between countries like the U.S. and then really growing but vulnerable populations like those in Nigeria and Pakistan and places like that. I love it when you're in your wheelhouse, Shannon. You have so much interest, always have so much interesting to add, but these are partic that was particularly uh, relevant and obviously USAID is your wheelhouse. Um, so Holly, last question for you about this is, you know, I was just talking about unintended consequences with the Hubble and telescope and these small satellites. But when you think about the world of real-time satellite data, improved monitoring, are there other ramifications that are not positive that we should be thinking about from a carbon removal perspective? Or do you think generally this is a, a good development that will lead to better, better carbon removal? Yeah, I think overall it's really good. And just to echo some of what Shannon said, I think the need is just to make sure it's accessible. And that's not just like having an open data set, although that's like a baseline action that we should do. It's also thinking about the computing power in different countries to be able to process that data or do something with it. It's making sure that the electrical grid is reliable enough that they can, you know, do that work without interruption. Um, some some things that maybe we don't always think about, and also obviously the human capital, like training early career scientists um, in these places to help them, you know, do do the work locally. So I think that there's a huge gap there. So not not a downside, just a, a gap that we need to step up and fill. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll just add, sorry, I was just going to add to, I think the, also not a downside, but important to, to remember kind of caveats in the data that we get. So um, I know that, you know, for example, like there is increasing usage of um, remote sensing for like um, emissions and even point source emissions, but some of that some of those um, algorithms are kind of based on like a lot of machine learning, a lot of AI in other sectors, it's based on like training it over a certain kind of set. And so if you're looking, for example, at like emissions from a certain type of land use change or a certain type of agricultural practice, if that set is trained kind of based in one area or one set of countries, that may not look the same for other places too. So I think it's just kind of a caveat and thing to be aware of 
when you're when you're kind of looking at those data to understand kind of what what was that what is that model kind of trained on and kind of what could be missing there is an important thing to to keep in mind and to continue research and expansion into in the future. Yeah, I think that's a good caveat for the CDR industry in general, right? Like models, satellite data, it all it all is so very ecosystem specific and land use specific and soil specific. Um, anyway, I will be ending with some good news today. So oftentimes um, within the environmental justice community, and I think within uh, like society generally, there's maybe mixed feelings about some of the different environmental regulations that have been put forward having both positive and negative impacts. I, I think of like NEPA as an example of maybe preventing housing or SEPA of preventing affordable housing in places. However, this this week, I want to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act um, because it has been a relative success. It has saved 227 species from extinction and 110 have made what we call remarkable recoveries like the epic, like the bald eagle, the American holligator, and the humpback whale. It hasn't been as favorable to all types of species. But it's always nice to celebrate the return of some iconic U.S. animals, and I am happy that the Endangered Species Act was able to do that within the U.S. at least. With that, I am going to say thank you to Shannon. As always, we are so happy you're able to join us every month. And Holly, so appreciate you uh, coming for the second time this month. We'll talk to you next week as well, and we will see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.